Puerto Rico, 1511. Juan Ponce de Leon was searching for something. The son of Spanish nobility, Ponce de Leon fought on the side of Spain against the Moors of Granada, helping the cause of the Spanish Reconquista. However, there was little use for soldiers in the aftermath. So the monarchy began funding expeditions to the New World, aka North and South America, to further the Spanish expansion abroad, i.e. conquest. Juan Ponce de Leon set out into the blue with the poster child of colonization, Christopher Columbus. Now, straight up, there isn't anything redeemable about Ponce de Leon. His first act in the Americas was to engineer a genocide against the Taino Indians of Hispaniola, after which his reward was slaves. Like any good conquistador of the time, Ponce de Leon also had an insatiable appetite for gold. And so when he learned of gold-rich rivers and mines on a nearby archipelago called Boriquen, he made inroads to assist in its conquest. The island's main settlement was dubbed by the Spanish Puerto Rico, meaning rich port, and this name soon extended to the entire territory. For his efforts, Ponce de Leon was granted the title of First Governor of Puerto Rico. However, his rule did not last long. You see, Christopher Columbus had been the first to invade Puerto Rico, and his son Diego believed it was his birthright to own the island for himself. Diego Columbus, much like his father, was a ruthless political mastermind. Though King Ferdinand of Spain was sympathetic to Ponce de Leon, he could not abide starting a conflict in a fragile colony, and so encouraged Ponce de Leon to cut his losses and further his exploration outside Columbus's jurisdictions. But King Ferdinand may have had an ulterior motive. As Ponce de Leon successfully forced intel from the indigenous populations concerning gold, the monarchy enthusiastically welcomed any other rumors or gossip from the colonies. And eventually, a rather curious story reached King Ferdinand's ears. The Cuban Arawak Indians spoke of a fabled island called Bemini, or Benini, resplendent with gold, far more than could be found in Puerto Rico or Hispaniola. Among the Spanish court, there was also talk of this Bimini, as it soon became known, calling home to an attractive and strong population of natives that never seemed to age. It was supposedly known among the Arawaks that a former chief named Sekene had gone off in search of the mysterious land and never came back. Fairy tales, superstition, or perhaps a confirmation of something long promised. Because when this news from the New World reached European ears, many were certain that this lost island was the fabled location of something that mystics, kings, and philosophers had been searching for in vain for centuries. A wellspring with the ability to reverse age and defy death itself. The Fountain of Youth.
The concept of a potion, elixir, or water of eternal life is not just one of the oldest myths in human history, but a global phenomenon. Qin Shi Huang, the first emperor of China and owner of the now-lost heirloom seal of the realm, Relic Episode 2, died from mercury poisoning while falsely believing that the heavy metal would grant him immortality. It did the opposite, of course. European alchemists hoped to produce an aqua vitae, or elixir of immortality, by transmuting substances in a precursor to modern chemistry. Chinese folk religion speaks of peaches of immortality, where one whiff can tack on several hundred years. In the Norse religion, there are apples protected by the goddess of love that bestow eternal youth among the gods. And in Hinduism, there is the divine Amrita. The most detailed example of a spring or fountain that grants immortality by either bathing in or drinking from its waters appears in the works of the Greek historian Herodotus. Herodotus is often celebrated as the father of history or at least Eurocentric history, and for a very good reason. Herodotus was one of the first writers to try and piece together chronologies and timelines of events by collecting sources, oral or documented. Now, a major criticism of Herodotus is that he also included outright legends in his narratives, doing little to distinguish between histories real or imagined. However, Herodotus always claimed that he was only going by his collected accounts, and never guaranteed accuracy. On his own writing, he said, The purpose is to prevent the traces of human events from being erased by time, and to preserve the fame of the important and remarkable achievements produced by both Greeks and non-Greeks. In Herodotus's time, his world was very small, limited to what we would recognize as the Middle East, the Mediterranean, and North Africa. This was largely due to a lack of technology and inability to explore vast distances, and yet stories would trickle in from the periphery of the Hellenistic bubble, and these exotic tales were often sensationalized, the Greeks projecting their fears and fantasies on what lay beyond the confines of their known world. During the Persian conquest of Egypt circa 525 BC, Herodotus writes that the armies of Persia sent out ambassadors to the empires and civilizations surrounding their new territory. On the Horn of Africa, in modern-day Ethiopia, it is said that the Persians came into contact with a people known as the Macrobians, whom they found unconquerable. This was because the Macrobians were basically superhuman, extremely strong, tall, and apparently very attractive. Herodotus writes that the Macrobians sat upon a supply of gold that was so plentiful they kept their prisoners in golden shackles. But this gold was not their most important treasure. The Macrobians, you see, had discovered the secret of immortality, which flowed from a sacred spring. We'll let Herodotus explain. The Macrobian, quote, led them to a fountain, wherein they had washed, they found their flesh all glossy and sleek, as if they had bathed in oil, and a scent came from the spring like that of violets. The water was so weak, they said, that nothing would float in it, neither wood nor any lighter substance, but all went to the bottom. If the account of this fountain be true, it would be their constant use of the water from which makes them so long-lived. The Greeks were not the only ones to reference a fountain of youth, as similar stories popped up in the legends of the Arabians and the Macedonians, specifically in the legendary accounts of the very real Alexander, a conqueror who would have put the king of Spain to shame. 
There are many variations of the Alexander story, depending on the culture telling it, but the amalgamated legend is this. While conquering the world, as you do, Alexander heard rumors of a place known as the Land of Darkness, or the Forest of Abkhazia, which could be found somewhere near the Ural Mountains or Turkey. This spooky place was said to have originated during a battle between a Persian king and a group of oppressed Christians. When the Emperor Shapur II sent his armies to kill off the Christians, the soldiers, outnumbered, prayed to God. All of a sudden, thick clouds of billowing and impenetrable darkness swallowed the armies of the Persians and trapped them within. The end result was an ancient world version of Area X from the novel Annihilation, a forbidden, literally dark area of the earth that nobody dared venture beyond. It was said that people still built villages on the outskirts of this shadowy land and believed that others existed within the black cloud, as they could often hear whispers coming from the dark. There may have been another reason that divinities concealed this forgotten land in eternal darkness, because within its confines existed a spring of life-bestowing water. It was this in particular that Alexander was searching for, accompanied by a hero named Andreas or a figure from the Quran named Al-Khadir. In order to reach the darkness, Alexander had to pass through Russia to the edge of the known world. Another legend says Alexander and his companion had to pass through a desert so hot that it burnt the saddles of their horses, and then through a Garden of Eden-like landscape abundant with flowers. Whatever the outcome of the tale, Alexander is unable to locate the fountain, having been cut off from his sidekick. But when his companion emerges from the dark, he is, noticeably, younger. An old Persian work of art depicts Alexander and Al-Khadir testing the waters on a dried, salted fish, which, miraculously, springs back to life. The Moroccan explorer Ibn Battuta wrote of wanting to visit this land of darkness and prove if the legends were real. However, he was told that the journey would require 40 days in a small wagon drawn by large dogs, and apparently after hearing that, he declined. The story of the Land of Darkness and Fountain of Youth took off in the English-speaking world thanks to a popular novel called The Travels of John Mandeville. The book was a purported travelogue of a knight who explored lands both known and unknown, and this mixture of semi-historical accounts sprinkled with outright fantasy ended up confusing a lot of medieval English people as to what actually lay beyond their island. While some accounts were more or less accurate, the travels of Sir John also speak of creatures called vegetable lambs, plant-based creatures resembling small sheep that grow from plants and are tied by an umbilical cord-like vine to their point of germination. The people of the Far East were said to have used these creatures to make fabric. It's now believed that the English did not yet have a fully working knowledge of the cotton plant and assumed that the substance had to come from, well, plant sheep. Interestingly enough, our mate Herodotus actually mentioned cotton in his writings on India, which had trees, quote, the fruit whereof is a wool exceeding in beauty and goodness. The natives make their clothes of this tree wool, end quote. And somewhere in between these writings concerning plant sheep and headless humans with faces in their torsos, seriously weird stuff, there is the Fountain of Youth. Sir John places the fountain in India, 
in a territory called Polom, or Kolom as we would recognize it, at the base of a mountain. And at the foot of that mountain is a farewell that hath odor and savor of all spices. And whoso drinketh three times fasting of that water of that well, he is whole of all manner sickness that he hath, and always young. Men say that well cometh out of paradise. It is believed that the travels of John Mandeville took many inspirations from the Alexander Romance, which was already known in Moorish Spain thanks to its Arabian influences. There was also, at roughly the same time period in history, the popular legendary figure of Prester John, a Christian king said to rule over a territory near India. In a dubious letter attributed to this figure dated from around 1165, Prester John speaks of a Christian prince from an area near Ethiopia, Herodotus' land of the Macrobians, who knew of a miraculous spring located on an island in the extreme meridian of the world, where long-lived people drew from its waters lasting health and renewal of youth. These stories, especially the works of John Mandeville, were interpreted by none other than Christopher Columbus as the truth, and he used the tales as a template for his explorations, proving mostly that he was really dumb. Nuance aside, there was active participants in the age of exploration who genuinely believed that somewhere in the darkest unknown corners of the world did exist a life-giving spring. After all, the story kept popping up throughout history in similar contexts, so clearly there had to be something to it all, right? And it wasn't just this legend that set the kingdoms of Europe abuzz. While expanding power and the acquisition of spices and precious metals was the main objective of the empires, the Spanish had other achievements in mind, such as finding so-called lost cities of gold. Okay, so they were the same exact goals, just weirder and more fanciful. And while there was nothing innocent about plundering the civilizations of the Americas, a component of the Age of Exploration was, ostensibly, to further knowledge of the world, albeit from the standpoint of Europe. This included a search for the fantastic, man-eating trees, and wondrous cities. But placing a Eurocentric template upon the rest of the world tends to create a lot of confirmation bias. Such was the case with the Spanish explorer Francisco de Oriana, who had been tasked with exploring the vast rainforests of South America in 1542. In search of a land of cinnamon, because, you know, spices, Oriana and his men came upon the banks of an endless river. Suddenly, they were beset upon by the Waikana, who dwelt along the shores of the river. The Waikana, who still exist, are unique in that their women traditionally fight alongside their men, and these Spanish explorers were probably caught off guard, having been repelled by an army of powerful women. Oriana, who was aware of the writing of Herodotus, believed that he and his men had just discovered the ancestral home of the legendary Amazon, a race of warrior women who are known to the ancient Greeks. Italian adventurer Marco Polo, as well as Christopher Columbus, had actually once tried to seek out the Amazonian realm. I mean, island inhabited by beautiful women who could crush your pelvis? Why not? And now Oriana was sure he'd managed to find it. Thus, Oriana dubbed the mighty river and its jungle the Amazons, and the name stuck. In reality, the Greeks had theorized many possible localities for the Amazonian women, but it's now believed the real Amazons were likely a misinterpretation of the Eurasian civilization known as the Scythians, who, like the Waikana, also employed armies of female warriors. Oh, and Herodotus, who had also written about cinnamon, 
believed that the lands of Cinnamon were guarded by winged serpents. People really should have stopped listening to this guy. In the age of exploration, all of these strange locations and artifacts were believed to actually exist because humanity hadn't really gone around to developing a scientific method. And to be fair, how were people supposed to know that livestock didn't grow on trees somewhere out there in the world? Since most of the known world had been conquered or visited by Europe, this new world of the Americas was literally the last place they hadn't checked for fountains of youth and cities of gold. And if these places were real, they would most likely be found on these uncharted continents. Which brings us to Ponce de Leon's voyage to discover the islands of Bimini in 1513. With three ships under his command, de Leon set sail from Puerto Rico on March 4th. They sailed past the Bahamas, which they believed in close proximity of the legendary Bimini, and then made landfall on unknown shores on April 2nd. Due to the landmass's lush landscape, and because the Spaniards had landed there around Easter's Festival of Flowers, or Pascua Florida, de Leon called the new territory Florida. Yep, that Florida. However, de Leon soon realized that this was not the mythic country of Bimini that he had been searching for. While the lands were populated by the indigenous tribes, this was not a country of gilded cities and waters of rejuvenation, but a humid and swampy terrain that offered little strategic or economic value for the Spanish. It appeared that Ponce de Leon's search for the Fountain of Youth had been for naught. But here's the thing. In all of his exploratory journals and correspondences with Spain, Ponce de Leon never once mentioned looking for the Fountain of Youth at all. The Spanish explorer hadn't just ruffled a few feathers in Hispaniola. Back home in Spain, there were people among the court who didn't exactly have a high opinion of him. And just as well, Leon also had his supporters, with their own stake in his search for unexplored territories in the New World. The person initially responsible for designating the Fountain of Youth in the Americas was a man named Pietro Martiri de Anguera, or Peter Martyr, a historian of the royal inner circle. At the time of de Leon's voyages, Peter Martyr was working on a magnum opus, a book chronicling all there was to know about the New World. He believed the fountain was on an island called Boinca, or Boyuca, which does sound like the indigenous name for Puerto Rico, which lay somewhere beyond the Pillars of Hercules. For context, a lot of explorers and historians use the phrase, beyond the Pillars of Hercules, which refers to the Strait of Gibraltar, which connects the Mediterranean Sea to the Atlantic Ocean. This idiom is also a massive generality. In ancient times, the Atlantic end of the Strait of Gibraltar marked the edge of the known world, Europe and Northern Africa. To go beyond was considered a fool's endeavor, because as far as anybody was concerned, there was nothing but endless sea past this point, and also probably monsters. Others argued there were other worlds or lost cities that could be found past Gibraltar, such as Atlantis. So when a brand new continent pops up that is, quite literally, past the Pillars of Hercules, any legends tied to this meaning suddenly become a whole lot more credible. Interestingly, Martyr suspected there were multiple fountains of youth scattered across the Caribbean. 
and that one of their locations was congruent with the recently discovered Florida. Now, there's no real academic way to say this, but Peter Martyr was full of crap, and definitely making things up as he saw fit. But of course, nobody questioned him because he was a historian in the Spanish court. He also never ascribed the Fountain of Youth to Ponce de Leon or his travels. However, a semi-contemporary named Gonzalo Fernandez de Oviedo did, and for a very specific reason. He wanted to humiliate de Leon. The Oviedo family were political rivals with the de Leons, constantly trying to win courtly favor and esteem with the Spanish crown. Oviedo took Peter Martyr's account and transplanted it onto the de Leon saga, painting a picture of a doddering and incompetent Ponce de Leon trying to seek out the fountain to restore his virility, i.e. perhaps the most bizarre and complicated way anybody has ever called someone impotent. The stories all began to snowball and blend into each other as historians and Spanish writers, obsessed with chronicling the New World, latched onto the idea that Ponce de Leon was specifically trying to find the waters of rejuvenation. Thirty years after Oviedo, Francisco Lopez de Gomara said that both the fountain and the island of the Amazon were located in the same region of the world. While there were other historians who parodied a similar chronicle, the widespread legend of Ponce de Leon and the quest for the Fountain of Youth can be attributed to Antonio de Herrera. And just a side note, I can't roll my Spanish R's, so you're just going to have to bear with me. I know it's not pronounced like that. Antonio de Herrera wrote about the explorer's travels almost 100 years after the fact. He actually inserted his own dialogue and theories alongside de Leon's own words, without doing much to distinguish between the two causing massive amounts of confusion. The mythologizing was further perpetrated by none other than American author Washington Irving of the legend of Sleepy Hollow and Rip Van Winkle fame. Irving had spent some time writing abroad in Spain, and after discovering Herrera's works, penned an English chronicle about Ponce de Leon. Suddenly, the English-speaking world was convinced a vain and bumbling Spanish explorer had accidentally discovered Florida while trying to locate a magical pool. While there is some debate over the indigenous peoples of the Caribbean spinning tales of healing springs, this is likely a mixture of tribal folklore and misinterpretation from Spanish explorers, specifically them asking the local Indians about magical sources of water, and the Indians just thinking they meant regular, drinkable sources of water. The legends of the enchanted land of Bimini are easier to pinpoint. It's now believed that these Caribbean oral histories, passed down over time, were referencing the Mayans of the Yucatan Peninsula. Recall that the Mayans had advanced architecture, technology, and cities in that part of the world for years, well ahead of many other cultures in the Americas. To anybody else in the region encountering or even visiting a Mayan city, it would feel like stepping into a science fiction story. The folktales likely took off from there. Except, here's the thing, there is an actual place called Bimini, and it is close to Florida. Ancestral cousins of the Taino Indians, the Lucayans, are the native people of the Bahamas, and their westernmost and relatively small island is called Bimini. It's very close to Florida, and in all likelihood, it was just a bit of bad direction and confusion that steered Ponce de Leon away from it during his journey. With its clear waters, sandy beaches, and tropical forests, anybody with an eye for beauty could easily mistake it for a paradisical land. 
and almost four miles from shore, hidden within the lush saltwater mangroves, is a mysterious, twisting cavern that holds a secret. At the end of the cave is a pool of fresh water, rich in minerals, specifically magnesium, said to improve both virility and vitality. Though known to locals for ages, it's hard to pinpoint if the tales of this healing spring were spoken of elsewhere in the Caribbean. But it's as good a theory as any. And as with many of the tall tales explored in this episode, there is a grain of truth to each legend that simply gets magnified and made more fantastic with each successive retelling. Historically, it's too easy to exoticize far-off places. When ancient mariners looked out over the Gibraltar horizon, they projected all sorts of fears and desires on those lands outside their scope. There be dragons, or Amazons, or fountains of youth. And as the world became smaller, the maps more detailed and expansive, the goalposts kept being pushed back. Eternal life was just beyond the Pillars of Hercules, then far off North Africa, South America, and the Caribbean. In contemporary times, it may now be found somewhere inside a laboratory, as medical companies and philanthropists pour billions of dollars into the emerging field of age reversal therapy. Perhaps their efforts reflect those of the Spanish explorers that came before them, chasing fables. Today, the city of St. Augustine, Florida, which purports to be where Ponce de Leon first set foot ashore, calls home to the Fountain of Youth Archaeological Park. This roadside attraction was built by a physician and larger-than-life woman named Luella de McConnell in 1909. Having profited from her efforts during the Yukon Gold Rush, Dr. McConnell claimed to have found a stone cross on the property, marking a well supposedly placed there as an indicator by none other than Ponce de Leon. Diamond Lil, as she became known among the locals, began to charge a small fee to access the healing waters from the well, which she had really just dug up a few years back. A garish resort and attraction was built around the well, and while it didn't offer eternal life, it did offer a steady and sizable cash flow for Lil until she died in a car crash in 1927. It also helped that the park actually did sit on a fairly important archaeological site, containing artifacts from both the indigenous population and early Spanish missionaries who followed in the wake of Ponce de Leon. The legend of the Fountain of Youth continues to inspire works of fiction, such as Natalie Babbitt's 1975 children's novel, Tuck Everlasting. It also inspired an immersive theatrical production called The Grand Paradise. The latter, an interactive play, revolves around a kitschy 1970s resort that, much like St. Augustine, claims to have been built over the Fountain of Youth, with immortal hotel staff trapped to live in the excesses of the 1970s for all time. Now, of course, I had to see a play like this for myself, and ended up going with a friend a few years ago in Brooklyn. The fully interactive and historically authentic resort featured an actual spring at the heart of the set. When one of the characters, a groovy activities director, handed me a bottle of the supposed magic water and told me to drink, I could only ask, does this mean I'll live forever? To which the character slyly replied, I suppose you'll just have to find out. 
Relic is written and narrated by me, Maxwell. If you like this episode and want to make this podcast immortal, you can rate and review Relic in iTunes. We also have a Patreon that has exclusive episodes, including the pilot episode to my Paranormal Mystery podcast from 2015, collaborations with other podcasters, and Tales from the Reliquary, which looks at weirder Lost Treasures that can't fit a full episode. Connect with me on Twitter at Lost Treasure Pod and email me at LostTreasurePod at gmail.com. Next time, they were not mainstream artists. But their impact on musical history was sadly not fully understood until after they vanished into thin air. Next time on Relic, the stories behind three lost treasures. Musicians who drove off into the night and never returned. The adventure continues. However, a semi-contemporary named Gonzalo Fernandez de Ovidia, 